Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Embar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Anslicht. Mickey, as you may know, before being taken down, the conservative social network parlor was hacked. So are you worried about your posting history being leaked to the internet at large? Uh, you know, I've got a small uh, small bit of protection just in case people find out that I actually have a Parler account and a Gab account because Parler is just way too tame for me. Um, so I have this thing. It's called uh, Parler Delete. And after like 30 seconds of a tweet, it's automatically deleted. So, you know, I can I can tweet or parlay uh, incendiary things and no one no one is no one knows after 30 seconds. So I'm protected. So this evidently is the brilliant thing about the parlor hack. So they coded this site so sloppily that when you set one of your, I'll just say, tweets to be deleted, it just marked it as deleted, but it still kept it on their servers. And so the person who like downloaded all of these tweets managed to get even the ones that people thought that they had, you know, the ones that they were panic deleting after they stormed the Capitol and decided that it was not a good idea to have all of this on social media. It was all out there. And now it's all out there for people to do with what they will oh my god oh shit so you're saying i'm like i'm actually now could be found out yes you are you are exposed and uh you know make plans is what i'm right, saying right so you has anyone just you know because i'm trying to avoid social media as much as i can has anyone you know uh shown a photograph of me in the capitol have i made that kind of like rounds you know i thought i saw you in the background of one of the washington post videos and it could have been a different ball dude tough to say <laughs> Um, all right. Of course, we're just kidding because I don't want any in- in- incensed uh, listeners uh, attacking me. Um, but uh, yeah, par- is it is it parlor? Is it parlay? How what how how do we call that thing? I, I I've heard parlor, but maybe that's wrong. I don't know. I mean, it's spelled like parlay in French, uh, and it would make sense. Does parler- our guest does our guest know? <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's Colbert Colbert thing. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm going to say in America, we speak American, and it is therefore parlor. Uh, okay, uh, you go with that. Um, all right, I think we should, uh, enough of this uh, uh, bullshit. Let's uh, introduce someone who's actually an expert in bullshit. Um, and that is none other than Gordon Pennycook. So uh, Gordon is an assistant professor of behavioral science at the University of Regina's Hill Levine Schools of Business. He is also an associate member of the Department of Psychology. Um, he, um, oh, I just found out, I think it's really exciting, and, and congratulations, Gordon, was recently elected to be a member of the Royal Society of Canada's College of New Scholars uh, just this, this year, so or 2020, I guess. It's, it's actually last year. Um, uh, Gord uh, received his PhD in 2010 from the University of Waterloo, so about uh, an hour or so away from uh, where we're sitting here in Toronto. Um, postdoc at Yale with uh, David Rand and Shane Frederick, and at least in the case of David Rand, uh, Dave has become a longtime collaborator of of, of Gordon, and, and often you'll see them them, them them writing together more and more. Um, it's if you just look at uh, Gordon's record, it's remarkable. Uh, Gordon has published nearly 100 papers, maybe but maybe it's even more than 100 right now, um, which is remarkable because he only got his PhD in 2010, so it's a huge number. Um, uh, garnered nearly 10,000 citations, although I'm going to put a massive asterisk uh, near that citation, uh, that, that little metric, because I believe that 4,000 citations alone in 2020, I think all of them are about COVID. So uh, we're going to, we'll talk a little bit about COVID later, I think. Um, now, I think Gord is interested in tons of things. I'm going to list a bunch of them and maybe like if we run out of things to talk about. We'll just kind of, I'll just quiz you on, on things. But I think the one 
kind of unifying theme of, of Gordon's research is that he focuses on decision-making, um, usually uh, emphasizing the distinction between intuitive processes, like so gut feelings, and more delib- deliberative processes, so analytic thinking. So for psychologists, we think of this as dual process uh, you know, reasoning or dual, pro- dual processes uh, in terms of the, the mental products of our minds. Um, but as I said, many, many interests, uh, so just to name some, religious belief, sleep paralysis, morality, creativity, um, homeopathy, uh, bullshit, delusional ideation, fake news and misinformation, political ideology, and science beliefs. And, I, and there are more there. Um, Gord, uh, as I mentioned, I keep, I keep on calling Gordon Gord, and I, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's okay. There's so many Gordons, famous Gordons in Canada that, you know, it's such a beautiful name in Canada. So I'm just calling you Gord, whether you like it or not, Gord. I go by Gord. Yeah. All right, excellent. Um, Gord grew up in Carrot River, uh, which is a very, very lovely but small town um, in Saskatchewan. Um, and just to give you a sense for how small it is, uh, the closest you know big store, big box store, Walmart, is two hours away. So this is really you know uh, grew up in a really remote remote part of uh, of Canada. Um, so, anyways, I've long introduction as usual. Welcome to the show, Gord. Uh, you you made an error, Mickey. Tell me about I got it. my PhD in 2016, not 2010. You think if I look that old, man? Like I know we're all bald here, but like, uh, yeah, it's 2016, man. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, well, then, then your accomplishments are that much more remarkable. Exactly. Thank you. Um, Thank you. You're incredible, Gord. Uh, we're not worthy. This show is not worthy of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I, that's what I was trying to get at. So right on. <laughs> Excellent. So I feel like you know, when that introduction, some of, some of our listeners might think I've already been drinking. I have not. I haven't even cracked open uh, anything, but I would like to. So, uh, Gord, what do you got? I have a Prairie Blonde uh, suitable drink that I'm from here, from Paddock Wood in Saskatoon, a brewery here. So I actually, I was going to get something from Regina. There's a couple of good, there's some good breweries here, District and Pile of Bones, for example. Um but this is what was in my fridge, and so I didn't want to leave the house, and so I haven't done that very much, and so that's why I'm drinking this Prairie Blonde. It's well, excellent. I mean, I, I just like having the, you know, the beers that uh, we can't get here, so uh, yeah, that seems interesting. It's also a 4.1 percent, so I figured I'd start off light so I don't make an ass of myself. So there you go. Hey, excellent. Uh, well, you're doing the opposite, right? You go, you're trying to make an ass of yourself as much as possible, or? Uh, well, I don't really need to try. It just comes natural. <laughs> <laughs> Special gift. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I have a Flying Monkeys uh, live transmission. I think we've had this one before. It's like a milk IPA, and I, I remember liking it. Excellent. Yeah, I think we I think we have. Uh, so I've got. You know, I am doing the opposite of, of Gord's. I've got a strategy in that I'm going for my heavier beer first. Uh, this is a seven percent beer. It's a New Belgium Voodoo Ranger IPA. Uh, and then I was like, who brews this? I had no idea. And then I looked at the. At the uh, the small print, and it's brewed by Steam Whistle Brewing Company. So it's actually a larger brewer um, out of Toronto, although still not a, a macro brew by any, by any means. So I'm looking forward to cracking this open. I'll do that right now. Cheers. I always thought that that was a sound effect. <laughs> when I listened nope. to the show, I thought it was actually a sound effect. But uh, that's, for the listeners out there, that's legit. That was just cracking the beer. 100% organic. I'm glad we waited. M- Mickey is, uh, yeah, I, I mean, he he's bungled the beer cracking and nearly spilled some on his computer more than once isn't that <laughs> isn't that true yeah it's true except, except for the nearly part i definitely spilled it <laughs> <laughs> right 
<laughs> Just yeah. luckily not on an important part, I guess. No, no. Uh, although, you know, it's funny that <laughs> since the pandemic started, there's literally a quadrant of my screen that is black. So Gord is like partially occluded right now. So it could be beer induced. It's possible. You have teased up. You can't get a new laptop, man. Like what is I definitely could get a new laptop. But I really like this laptop <laughs> and I just need to get it repaired. And it's like, I got to leave my house for that. Or I got to go to a store for that. And I got to, and also actually the worst part is I got to leave my laptop for that. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so I, I've not wanted to do that. I think first we're going to ask you uh, something that we ask, I, I think almost all of our guests, which is how did you end up where you are, right? How did you decide um, to study? Uh, what led you to go into cognitive psych? What led you to go into academia in general? Like what led you to study the things that you studied in, in graduate school and decide that you want to do this as a career? When I was in uh, high school, one of my skills was talking to teenage girls on MSN to try to deal, help deal with their problems. You know what I mean? Like why did so-and-so, this asshole do that or whatever? I felt like I was pretty good at that. So I was like, you know what, I should I should be a psychologist. And then what happened was I went to undergrad. I, and that's why I, I went to the University of Saskatchewan for undergrad, which is the closest university. That's just what you do. You know, I just it's three hours away, but that was the closest one. Uh, and I realized that clinical psychologists help people with like actual problems. <laughs> and I was not mentally prepared for that kind of thing. And also, I don't think I'd be very good at it. Um, and then what happened was I started reading about atheism. Of all things, I just like I there was a little section of the library at the U of S with like um, and this was before like the God delusion is 2005 ish. So it was like right before that it was, like, you know, but it was all around the time. Um, and I just started getting interested in, in like people's beliefs. Um, and I happened into I took some I was in psychology already. And Valerie Thompson, who's a, a researcher in reasoning, she like suggested that I join the lab for uh, what's called the NSERC USRA. It's a under, undergrad summer research award. Um, somebody, what happened actually was that somebody didn't take it. That is, I did not win the award. Somebody didn't take it. And then I was like on the list. And so I got, I got into the lab that way. If that didn't happen, I probably, I mean, I would have been a, probably a bee farmer if that didn't happen. Um, and then I just got really into the reasoning stuff. And that's how I got into cognitive psychology and uh, everything else is history. Are there ever times where you're like, man, bee farming seems kind of attractive? All the time. I mean, because when you, when you, what I would, my job on the bee farm was I was out in the field, you know, you take the actual boxes and all that kind of stuff. And so you have a certain amount that you do that day and then you're done. And then you, you can go and crack your beer and watch baseball or whatever. Uh, our job doesn't do that. We can't, it's not over. Like I, I could write emails right now. So, yeah. So I want to I want to probe the bee the bee farmer as well. So I mean, you could have said anything. You could have been like, I could have been a mechanic. I could have been, you know, uh, plowing the fields. But bee farmer. So you obviously you've worked on a bee farm. You is that where you grew up on a bee farm? Or? No, no. I um, the people that lived across the street owned a bee farm. Not that that was important. It was just that it was a thing that you did in the summertime in Care River for employment. Uh, and I, I just kind of like end up liking it. I did it for, I think, four summers. And that's how I paid for my college, mostly. Apart from loans, of course. But yeah, Getting st I've been stung by bees like hundreds of times. Which I think, you know, this is a corny joke, but it has prepared me for academia. <laughs> you know, I only, I, I've only ever been stung by a bee once. And that happened like two or three years ago only. Yeah. Uh, I was playing soccer barefoot. Uh with my son and I stepped on a bee and I, and, and he, he stung me before I killed him. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, that sucks for the bee mostly. Uh, 
And the bottom of the foot is not that bad at all. Like you've got under the under the thumbnail, you know, under your nails, like that really hurts because it can't it can't like swell. So it yeah, that's the worst. Under your nail, oh my gosh, that, that, I can't even imagine the pain. Also, there. the ear hurts a lot. You know, anyways, there's we could go through the there's other areas that also would be bad, but I haven't been stung on them. <laughs> <laughs> in a in a relatively recent episode, uh, UL and I kind of discussed academia uh, and the pros and cons of academia, working in academia, being a professor. Um, and we, we, I think we did focus a lot on the negatives because, uh, because I think negatives get so much attention, especially on social media. It seems like that's all we're allowed to, 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 to talk about, at least professors. Um, but uh, I, you know, maybe it's, maybe it'll become a standard question. I'm not sure that we ask our guests, but w- what about you? Do you like your job? What parts of it do you like? What parts do you hate? What parts would you like to change? Uh, yeah. W- what's your experience with academia? I like that episode, by the way. That was a good episode. Uh, you don't, you don't hear the positive stuff. Anyway, I, I think it's the greatest job ever. Like I, um, my dad, uh, so I grew up on a farm until I was five, and then it went bankrupt. Uh, and then we moved into town. He worked at the sawmill and so on. He had, like, at one point, he had, like, four jobs. Um, and I think about what my job is, like, uh, <laughs> when I'm just sitting in my office. Basically, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you kind of have to do that you don't want to do that much. But you have quite a bit of discretion on what you decide to, to engage with. Uh, and also, my back, it doesn't hurt. I mean, it hurts because I hunch a little bit, but... My, you know, my fingers aren't calloused and so on. Um, yeah, it's a good job. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, there's, there's negatives and you have, and you know, it's once you're, once you're in it, you kind of focus on the negative sometimes because that's how we are. But, uh, uh, I love it. Yeah. So what are the negatives for you? If I can probe a little bit. Uh, the negatives is that I can't shut it off. And I think that's partly me and partly the job. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, there's just some weeks where I can't stop thinking and I have to take melatonin or whatever to fall asleep because I can't, uh, I can't read, I can't read like nonfiction books anymore. Uh, I used to, I loved, I did that all the time. I like, I loved reading like history books and a bunch of, bunch of other stuff. And now it just like, it doesn't put me to sleep anymore. It just like turns off all this other, which is great too, but it's just, uh, you know, the brain needs a break and I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I think I'm better at that now, but I totally know what you mean. Um, I used to describe it as I am my own worst enemy in the sense that, you know, before, before grad school or even, even during grad school, I felt I had a really balanced life. I think I had like multiple interests, you know, radio DJ, I was super into music, into art, into culture. Um, and then as I got into this field and the, the more I got into it, the, my interests started like falling off. Um, and before I knew it is like, I actually don't care about anything other than this. Um, and you know, for me, you know, starting a family, having kids, you know, that, that helped me uh, in, you know, in that regard, cause I had, you have to have other interests you know, you can't just be like ignoring your kids. Um, that's uh, typically frowned upon and in some, in some instances illegal, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I do think it's, 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 it's hard when you really like this thing. And I think a lot of us really like what we're doing. So Mickey, I want to follow up on something. I never knew that you were a radio DJ. Yeah. Yeah. I was a radio DJ in, uh, well, college, college radio. I mean, uh, I should have qualified that college radio, Brown student radio. Yes. Uh, so this is a question about the Canadian job market for cognitive psychologists with PhDs, which you've done some analyses on. So I'm wondering whether you can tell our listeners about that, speaking to maybe some of the downsides of this job, which is it's hard to get one. Yeah. Uh, 
Do you want the backstory on that? I think the backstory is more interesting than the analysis, but uh, please, yes, yeah. So ha- this is maybe it's a kind of window into my um, being weird or whatever. But I, when I was on the job market, so basically when I when I finished, I did my PhD in cognitive psychology in Canada, and being an un- unimaginative person, you know, like and also like since I'm from, maybe it's because I'm from a small town, but I like I'm a scared, I'm like basically scared of new things, and like moving to I when I I uh, could have went to York. For grad school, but Toronto was too scary for me, so I went to Waterloo instead, and whatever. Um, anyway, so I wanted to be a cognitive psychologist in Canada uh, when I graduated. Uh, turns out I'm, I'm a social psychologist, actually. Cognitive psychologists uh, don't. If I go to like a cognitive psychology conference, there's like nothing that's related to anything that I'm doing, <laughs> even though that's what was my training. Um, so I, when I went, anyways, I was on the job market. Uh, I wanted to get some sort of sense of what my odds were. And so I decided to just start going through all of the departments in Canada that had cognitive psychology PhD programs and looking at who was hired since like in the last 10 years. And this was 2016. Um, and then I did that for a while and I got an answer and it was like, I basically looked at people's CVs, how many uh, papers they had, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I, at some point I was like, I think I, I kept I kept on telling people about it and I figured I should probably do something more formal since I've done like half of the work so that other people can know about it. And then I started working with Valerie Thompson, who's my undergrad supervisor, who knows some stuff about this. She's been in the field for a long time. And we got, we emailed the department heads and we got like lists of people who were hired so that we can verify it. And then I eventually just went through manually every single person that was hired in Canada in cognitive psychology, 2006 to 2016, went through their records, recorded a bunch of stuff. Um, and it turns out that there's like hyperinflation basically in papers. Uh, and, and it's not me, it's not just like for the top, you know, universities. It's like, it's about the same, uh, regardless of what university you're, you're at. The average for 2016 was like 20 some papers. If you look at the distribution, I, and, and also because what I did was like, I wanted to get some, some, some comparison groups. And so I looked at like award winners for, uh, the Canadian Society for Brain Behavior Cognitive Science. I looked at Psychonomic Society, which is a cognitive psychology. Uh, group they have an early career award looked at APA I think and there was might be one other one and if you look at uh, people that were hired up until like 2010 ish it's pretty flat it's like the average is like five to ten maybe uh, it goes up to maybe ten by the end and then it's just hugely increases after that um, partly because of the recession in 2008 I think and then we just have way more PhD students now um, and so that's at that point, I was like, maybe I'm not a cognitive psychologist. <laughs> and I started looking elsewhere. So I just want to make sure I understand this, and, and, and for our listeners as well, because we've got many graduate student listeners. Um, so now, and a couple of qualifications. This is analysis done you know, in Canadian schools. It's also done specifically in cognitive psychology. Yeah. So it might not generalize to other areas, although something tells me it's probably not that far off. Um, so you're saying that the average number of papers that, uh, a newly hired assistant professor, ten, tenure track assistant professor, got was you said twenty or sixteen or twenty something. Yeah, uh, it was like basically it doubled from two thousand five to two thousand sixteen. And that's not like the mean is being pulled up by a handful of like crazy outliers. No, I mean there is there is a uh, there's one outlier in two thousand sixteen that had like fifty five papers. Um, she did like a long postdoc uh, at Calgary, and I think that she just wanted a job there, and she ended up getting a job there. So. Um, but no, not really. It's the, the whole distribution is shifted up. 
I mean, that is, that is crazy. Uh, so, you know, I, I was hired in, in that, in that soft era. (laughs) I was hired in, was it 2000 and, oh my God, 2005, I think. Um, so in other words, I was lucky. I I think I had, when I was on the mark, the job market the first time, I think I had six papers total. And maybe in there, there was like one book chapter. So it was actually five papers. Um, and I had at that point multiple, uh, interviews and even multiple job offers uh, at that point. But but now you're saying I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't even get a call back. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's hard because uh, I'm not sure that it's just the number of papers too, though. It's like, um, um, even they were actually like the ones, everybody had a big paper too, like in a big journal. It wasn't just like people getting a lot of pubs and getting jobs. They were just, they just had really good CVs. Like it was just, and if you look at people get, that get hired, it's like just, next time you're on a committee or whatever like it's if you compare and this is this is the thing i was telling people at the time and i uh still think it's important for like faculty members that have been around for a while if they're on a job committee they should really look at their own cv like go back you you probably don't remember but just go back and what you where you were when you were interviewing (laughs) and then that might give you a little bit of like empathy for the situation that people are in right now and it's only for sure it's worse now than it was back then i mean that was I was 2016, and so, I mean, I'm sure it's even worse now than it was then. So, okay, I, I think we should uh, maybe uh, shift gears a little bit, uh, talk about something else, and then maybe we'll take a break, and then we'll we'll, we'll get really into, uh, I think, some fun stuff. Um, but kind of just as a taste, and I think the first, I believe, although it's possible that I, I might have known about your work before this, but for sure, you 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 appear to my radar. Um, you know, after winning uh, in 2016, you won the Ig Nobel Prize. Okay, and the Ig Nobel Prize, uh, for those who don't know, um, so it's IG, you know, space, you know, Nobel Prize, um, is a satiric prize awarded annually to celebrate, you know, 10, uh, you were one of them, unusual or trivial <laughs> achievements in scientific research. Its stated aim being to honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make people think. Um, and you won this award for your work on what you call pseudo-profound bullshit. So first, before we talk about bullshit, which I really want to get into, um, I, well, what was that like to win the Ig Nobel Prize? What was that experience like? Didn't you, weren't you even invited to give an address and you were in a fancy tuxedo or suit or something? I was, it was not a fancy tuxedo or suit. I, I, had my, I had one of my two jackets on and I wore a tragically hip t-shirt underneath it, uh, which was my go-to at the time. Um, I didn't wear dress shoes though, but, uh, um, yeah, it's at Harvard. It's like, it's at, in William James Hall, I think, or whatever. Uh, and they're not William James Hall. That's where they, the psych department is, whatever it's in Harvard. Um, yeah. And I saw like, I, they have actual Nobel laureates hand out the prizes. I, and they have, they, they fly, uh, paper airplanes. I saw like a Nobel laureate get hit in the back of the head with the paper airplane. It was pretty, you know what that's funny? Cause they, they, they tell you, so we got the Ig Nobel peace prize. They don't tell you why. And some of the, some of the people get prizes to make fun of them some get prizes for doing research and they don't really tell you which one's which right uh i assume that they were honoring us but uh, you know whatever it was kind of like being it was like it was like being in a in like a two-hour long monty python sketch basically <laughs> i love that they're, they're airplanes but i also love that the, the the description is awarded to you know unusual or trivial yeah. <laughs> scientific <laughs> achievement i love that yeah so where does yours fall i i don't know i honestly i don't know but uh mark regrams who run is a great guy so it's it's pretty fun 
Okay, so let's actually get into the actual, you know, the paper that that went, that garnered you this this I think much deserved attention. So um, the work is on pseudo profound bullshit. So before we we say what that is, what is bullshit? Um, and you know, I think for, for some of our audience, they might not know that it's actually it's actually a, a, a even a, a thing that you know philosophers especially talk about. So 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 what is meant by bullshit? Yeah, there's this great book by well, it's actually an essay that was published later as a as a little tiny little book. Uh, by Harry Frankfurt. It's called On Bullshit. So Frankfurt's a philosopher. Um, and so what he does in the book is he distinguishes bullshit from lying, right? So like if you lie about something, that implies that you care that it's true, right? Like you, you're going through effort to like convince somebody that something that you believe is not something that they should believe. Um, and so what he says is that bullshit is like actually the opposite of that, right? It's, it's defined as um, something that is constructed without any concern for the truth. Um, and so that it's a different kind of category of thing. And before the, the, you know, people use the term all the time to refer to things and there was nothing, no research on it as far as I could tell, um, at least from a psychological standpoint. Okay. So, uh, can you begin with the definition? So Donald Trump, is he a liar or a bullshitter? I mean, or it could be and, but I mean, I think mostly he's described as a liar, but Given your definition, would it be more apt to call him a bullshitter? I think he's more apt. It's definitely more apt to be a bullshitter. I mean, he does lie about specific things. Like he, like the um, payment to Stormy Daniels was a lie. Like he had to lie about that because he had to cover up. But he 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 um, spews falsehoods about things that are completely trivial that he doesn't need to uh, to do in many cases. Or like um, the kind of conversational exaggeration of everything is a pretty strong indication of not caring about whether things are true. And I think he, I mean, I think it's, it's obvious that he doesn't care about whether things are true, right? Um, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I mean, whatever, as a partisan hack, it seems obvious, but you, th- you would think that somebody who cared about the truth would say true things more often. <laughs> and, and like, he's, ba- he's shooting it from the hip. It's like, it's ba- probably 50-50. You don't know what, you know, uh, you can't trust anything he says as far as I'm concerned. And so, like, that, that seems like someone who's bullshitting to me. So do you ever want to scream when you, 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 because it's headline after headline for four years about how he's a liar. Have you ever been like, actually, technically, no, he's a bullshitter. Have you like ever, have you ever had the urge to write a paper with Trump is not a liar, he's a bullshitter. You know what, when, it, when so because our paper was published in 2015. So it was like, you know, before all this happened. And at the start, I was like, you got to stop calling him a liar. He's actually a bullshitter. But then I realized that that like level of, uh, um, pedantry was not <laughs> worthwhile. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. He's, you know, if you're a liar, bullshitter in that context, he's a president who's saying things that are false. It doesn't really matter. So, how do you actually study bullshit scientifically? Like, what did you guys do in the research that that won this prize? So, by the way, so the, the original paper is really a methodological paper. Like, I, I do, I talk about it for like research methods classes, and I think it's a really good uh, example for that. To, to toot my own horn like a like an asshole, um, so that um, it's we have the operational definition right. We have or we have to operationalize it. We we bullshit is something constructive without concern for the truth. But you know when when Trump says something, I don't know what his intentions are when he's saying it, right? So what we did instead was we have these um, there's just, there's two websites. One called one's called wisdomofchopper.com. The other one's called just the New Age Bullshit Generator. And what they both do is they take um, these kind of like abstract buzzwords and they put them together randomly in a sentence. And so uh, one example is hidden meaning transforms unparalleled abstract beauty. So that's just 
it sounds like something that make like sounds might like make sense, but it's just a bunch of random words put together. I feel my life is better now. I don't know. I just heard that. I feel like calm. It's, just, it's improving your life. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's like this is this is the most innocuous of bullshit, right? Like this is, it's like self help, um, like new age guru stuff. But it, because it's random, it's literally constructed without any regard for the truth. There's no intended meaning, right? And so it fits the kind of definition there. Um, and so that's what that's what we use to like to create our measurement. We just gave people those random sentences, asked them if they think they're profound, and then the whole paper is just making the argument that people's responses is an index of their receptivity to bullshit. And what have you found that to correlate with? So lots of stuff. So that, so it so it relates to an original paper, we had things like believing in conspiracies or complementary alternative medicine, people who are more religious, uh, no offense, people who believe in more paranormal things. Um, and of course, it relates to the way that you think, right? Like people who stop and reflect more they're more kind of analytic and uh, less, they rely less on their intuitions and gut feelings, tend to be more uh, kind of better at detecting bullshit. They're not as receptive to it, right? Um, and then we did like later studies. People who are more receptive to bullshit are more likely to believe fake news, and there's been a bunch of other. Uh, it's actually pretty, like you, you can do, you can give people five random sentences, ask them how profound they are, and it will correlate with a bunch of stuff. Like it's, it's actually like uh, a super effective measurement. And in the, in the paper, of course, we have other items where we ask people to rate the profundity of like motivational sentences that aren't random and it's predict you get much more prediction from the random sentences than from the non-random ones and so on so the obvious thing that comes to mind here is cognitive ability it's just people who are smarter are better at detecting bullshit yeah that's right and so verbal intelligence in particular i mean in this form because they're like abstract words there's this is great um paper it's called the guru effect from dan sperber and and the idea is basically that um, it's not empirical; it's like a philosophical paper. But um, that when people don't understand something, they often assume that it means something that is so profound that they can't grasp it, right? And so, understanding the words and then under, and appreciating that their combination in a sentence doesn't mean anything. You know that requires pretty advanced thinking. Um, and so that's definitely a big element of it for sure. There's a branch of, of academia you know, in the humanities, you know, who are captured by, let's say, postmodernism, where, you know, you, you sometimes see these papers, and, and there's a whole trope of this online now, where people will just put the abstracts out of, like, humanities papers, and you look at it, and it's a fucking word salad. I mean, I, I can't make, I cannot make any meaning out of it, yet it's published, and some people think it's really, really smart. And when I read it, I, I, I actually feel dumb. I'm like, I don't get this, so, so would... People who review and write those kinds of papers, would they not do well on this kind of test? Uh, on, would they fall for pseudo-profound bullshit or, or is it something else altogether? Yeah, it's not because it's not just like dumbness. Uh, there's another element that we, we I like to call it uh, reflexive open-minded thinking. It's kind of like being so open-minded that your brain falls out. You know what I mean? Like that you're so you're so kind of willing to accept claims and that's you could be really smart and you and disposed to doing that you know they, they are kind of separate elements i think that's part of it like you just and, and, and in a certain sense it, it might be a sound strategy from for like maybe mental health reasons or whatever where you're just like you know you you just it's like my mother-in-law is a good example of this she's not gonna listen to this so it's okay that i talk about this a anything that she can interpret to be a positive thing she does it like almost like, and she's just, and so it, it's, it's really, and so she's a great person. It's, she's great to hang out with, you know, because everything's so positive and everything, but she, she'll just 
motivated reasoning that thing into like something else and then like reinterpret it to be a positive thing. And I think that, you know, that, to a certain extent, that's it's okay that people are kind of open-minded to believing stuff. But I mean, in certain contexts, that's not going to help you. And so um, uh, vigilance is important too. So they're just kind of different competences. And I mean, of course, people who are more uh, intelligent are better at, they're less likely to be that kind of open-minded thing, but it's it, there are kind of separate elements. So, I, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners will be thinking, this seems incredibly relevant right now in the US because QAnon is such a political phenomenon, right? And you're like, talk about believing things that are unlikely uh, or seeing patterns where they don't exist. Like this has got to be like the most salient kind of most politically consequential example right now. Have you guys run anything on that yet? Well, not, not on QAnon in particular, like on different conspiracy beliefs. And, and they're all pretty highly correlated. Like it, in, in fact, conspiracy beliefs that are contradictory are correlated. Right, like two things that don't make sense together, and we did a, like a, the recent on the election thing. We did people who thought that the Capitol Hill storming, whatever the hell we're going to call it, the the one nine thing, one six thing. What was the date? It doesn't matter. The the storming of Capitol Hill. People who thought that was better also thought it was more likely that it was Antifa that was doing it. <laughs> like the, it's a pretty small correlation, but like those are completely contradictory things. Um, so yeah, for sure, and and part of it is like. Um, you, it, uh, what ha what seems to happen, and there was a great article in uh, where was it, New York Times, I think, um, or maybe Washington Post recently, where it was detailing how somebody went ended up going down the rabbit hole, and often the first few steps, because it's not like you just like no, you're thinking about things normally, and then now you believe in QAnon, you like you start believing something a little bit more radical, a little bit more radical, and you keep on going further and further and further, and then you end up in this completely different place. And so that first few steps where you're like, you would be like, this sounds like bullshit, and then you just disengage, where someone's like, oh, that's kind of interesting, I should explore that some more, and then they end up down the rabbit hole. It seems like a pretty uh, important um, dimension of the way that we think. So as Mickey alluded to already, um, there's a lot of stuff that we want to ask you about that has to do with fake news, conspiracies, and a lot of the stuff that's going on in the U.S. right now being example number one of that. But uh, I think we maybe want to take a quick break first. Great. All right. See you back here yep. in a few. When the color of the night All the smoke for one
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, so you can at mention us or DM us. We both check that account. If you'd like to send us an email, uh, the show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that will go to both of us. Um, the website, show website, fourbeers.com, where you can listen to uh, any of our episodes and drop us a line there as well. Just a note to say, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. Uh, it really helps other people discover the show. Um, Mickey, am I leaving anything out? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think we've, I think we've got a couple or two or more reviews lately, so we're always appreciative of those. So thank you for leaving those. And also, you, well, you did mention the, uh, you know, the us possibly maybe starting a Patreon at some point. Um, why are we doing this, UL? Possibly? Uh, well, I from my end, mainly because people sometimes ask for it, and it seems like it would be nice to give the people what they want. Uh, but also, you know, I daddy needs a new pair of shoes. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I, was, I was hoping you would actually be honest. Yeah, man, I, you know, if you want to give us money, we'll take it. I mean... I, I see it as a way to facilitate people giving us beer because, you know, at the very, or the first couple of months of our show, we said, give us beer. We realized that uh, the tyrannical U.S. and Canadian governments will not allow people to send us beer in the mail. So this is a way for you to do this, uh, possibly. We haven't started any any Patreon just yet, so we're just, you know, uh, toying with the idea. But if you want to give us money, just you know, email us and say, I want to give you money, and then we'll, you know, uh, we'll you take can do it. a GoFundMe for a new laptop, Mickey. Yes. <laughs> yes. <right>. Good idea. <laughs> Replace Mickey's laptop. Um, yeah. If it, seriously, uh, if you guys are interested in such a thing, um, email us. Let us know. Let us know what sort of like bonus stuff you'd be looking for. Um, we're not. I, I don't think we want to commit to anything, but we're considering it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. I want. I, I. I got a new beer, uh, and I'm really excited to tell you about it because it has, I think, possibly the best name of a beer. Uh, I've seen in, in 2021. All right, go for it. <laughs> the beer is called an IPA. Oh, wow. That's creative. An IPA. It's from Trinity Bellwoods, a Bellwood brewery. So they're, you know, you know, the beer is going to be good quality. Uh, that are, uh, oh my gosh. I did not actually look to see the alcohol content. I had assumed it was going to be like in the fives. No, it's 7.3. So I, I, my, my <laughs> trying to go stronger didn't work. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm, I'll commit to it. I'll do it. Um, what do you got, Gord? <clears throat> I have a uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon, um, established in Milwaukee, eighteen forty-four. Uh, yeah, it's four point nine percent. Looking forward to it. Excellent. You know, I don't think I've ever heard of that beer. You, UL? It doesn't. Maybe it sounds vaguely familiar. We'll uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Maybe because I'm cheap. I don't know. But I I have one good beer, and then I have filler beer, and Pabst is my choice for filler beer. Uh, right. So um, I, uh, well, I haven't quite finished the live transmission yet, full disclosure. My second beer, um, I found this uh, tall can of Spaten. It's a German Pilsner um, at the grocery store. And it was like two bucks. And I was like, wow, that's really cheap for imported beer. And then I look at the can more closely now, and it actually says German style beer. And uh, it says on the side that it's actually brewed by Labatt. Uh, so- <laughs> All right, I'm just going to crack this guy open. And uh, cheers. Here's, here's the Milwaukee. 
uh, Mickey, I think now we want to talk fake news, don't we? Yes, we do. So we, we, we kind of ended that way. But um, really, I think you are on the forefront of, of studying this topic, again, with your, your longtime collaborator, David Rand, um, misinformation and fake news. Um, and, you know, it is, you know, it seems more topical than ever. Uh, it seems like every every second week there's some other, you know, relevant piece of news that's related to the world going awry because what seems uh, because of misinformation or at least attributed to misinformation. So maybe we can just start like from the beginning um, and tell us, you know, you know, I know it sounds self-evident, but what is fake news and how does one study fake news? Um, so when we first started, so like in 2016, actually what happened was I was, so I did my post, I started my postdoc with Dave Rand who did a bunch of work in cooperation at the time. Um, I had no interest in cooperation really as a, Thing he had done like dual process stuff. That's what was the connection was, um, and it was December. Like we had not figured out what we were going to do. And uh, had started you know in September, which is a pretty long time for a postdoc to like just be kind of hanging around and like knowing about. Um, but then the election happened, and the fake news that happened. The big story about fake news during the election was completely fabricated news headlines. So it'd be like the Pope endorsed Donald Trump. Someone would make it would make a website, like create, just make up a bunch of shit, and then. People would spread the headlines on Facebook or whatever, and then people would get ad revenue um, and then pay the bills. And like sometimes it was like teenagers in Macedonia. In many cases, it wasn't even like political actors that were doing it. They were just trying to make a buck on ad revenue. Uh, and since then, things have gotten like kind of worse in a certain sense. Like we, we at the time we thought that fake news was a bigger problem than it probably was. Like that particular like part, like one element example of misinformation of like made up headlines was not there were some like really viral ones but like generally people were still reading the news um and then misinformation became a much bigger problem like it was like generally speaking like trump saying things that are false uh going like and and um partisan news websites like breitbart even fox news like repeating falsehoods um or just being misleading and biased uh so it became all a part of that that's what we all we started researching all kind of elements of that um, just basically it was, it started off being like the specific form of fake news and started being falsehoods on the internet, which is a pretty big, uh, pretty big thing, obviously. Um, okay. So, so, you know, so you, you differentiate between fake news and misinformation. So fake news is literally just a made up headline and misinformation is, is how is that different from so fake misinformation news? is just something that's false. And so it doesn't, uh, you know, so that, so like Trump saying, tweeting something that's false is misinformation. Uh, making an error can be misinformation. Like misinformation does not imply that you're trying to um, anything about intent. It's just like things that are false. Is, that's what that's how we use it. I mean, pe- there's debates about terminology and you know whatever. But when I, when I say misinformation, I just mean something that's false um, and whatever the progeny of it. Okay, and then who are the people who like fall for fake news, and why they fall for fake news or misinformation? Uh, well, this relates know. back to what we were talking about with the bullshit thing, which is which was I mean the reason that I started doing this work in the first place was I was focused on how errors happen, and one of the biggest things is people who, or, or I mean we all do this, but some people do it more than others. We rely on our intuitions and gut feelings, right? Um, we don't stop and reflect. We don't think in an actively open-minded sort of way. We don't kind of question our own beliefs. And uh, that seems like a big problem, especially if you think about like social, how social media works, right? People are taking a break from work. You know, it's mostly like pictures of dogs and babies and whatever. And then like there's a news headline and their brains are kind of shut off and they're not really thinking about it. And then they kind of share it or they 
you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess, and then they might tell somebody else about it later on or whatever. Um, they're not really thinking about it, and that seems to be like a pretty good element of what's going on. And yeah, yeah. So, can you break down for us a little bit? Um, you know, you can imagine different degrees of credence that people give to misinformation that they're spreading. So there might be people who are entirely convinced that what they're spreading is true. And then there's people who might be like, well, you know, it could be true. And, you know, let's just like talk about it. Or it might be people who kind of don't care whether it's true or not. Getting back to your point about bullshit, it's like, well, this seems like fun or it makes me feel good. And so I'm just going to put it out there and, and whatever. And I, I'm thinking in particular, I don't know if you know this case that was uh, I saw this on Twitter in the last week, and it was actually some sort of misinformation on the left about some consequences that Trump would face if impeached. This guy wrote this like viral tweet. And when um, an actual journalist tracked him down and it was like, hey, actually, this is false. He was like, oh, fair enough. I was just having a good time. I saw it on Facebook, you know? So I, I, I wonder if you have a sense for like how common are these different motives? Like how, how much are people who are promoting this misinformation doing it because they really believe it versus it's just entertainment versus something in between? That's a great question. And, and I, I did see that. It was Daniel Dale who did the fact check. Um, so I think it's way more, um, it's at least more common that people are doing it without thinking about it than we think that we would, we would assume. We always kind of assume people have more discretion in their choices than they actually do. Right. Um, so I'll give you an example of one experiment. In, in one condition, we ask people whether they would share a set of news headlines. So they're, you know, political headlines, pro-democratic, pro-republican, uh, some number of them. And then in the other condition, we ask them instead to rate the accuracy of the headline prior to saying whether they would share it. And what you find is when you do that, you cut the sharing of the false headlines in half. Right, like half the time when they were like, I would share this. If you ask about accuracy at the start, they're like, ah, you know, they're, I guess, you know, they're not like, because it's, it's between subject, but they just like, they're like, I'm not going to share it once you do that. Uh, about like um, another, what, uh, two thirds of the the, uh, the remaining are people who just believed it. They like thought the fake things were true and then they shared them. And then the rest, it, like, um, it's a pretty small proportion of people were like, that's false. And like, hey, fuck it, I'm going to share it anyways. <laughs> you know, and, and in some cases like that, I mean, surely that happens like where they're like, it's funny or or whatever. People sometimes do share false things or maybe they just want to see the, the world burn. But I don't think it's normative. Of course, it's hard to extrapolate from that to how people are doing it on social media. But, it you know, because we fix their attention and so on. But it does seem to be that like even in that context where you think you'd be un overestimating how uh, in, uh, under underestimating how inattentive people are, like it's a big inattentive to accuracy. It's, it's a pretty big element of the problem. This, this suggests some pretty straightforward interventions for, you know, social media companies to, to implement, right? If, if this is uh, so thoughtless, then you might think that a pretty simple nudge that asks people just to consider accuracy, for example, would really cut down on the extent to which people uh, disseminate fake news or misinformation. Have you guys done any work like that? Or are you aware of anything like that that's been tried in the field? Oh my gosh, thank you for the question. Yes, we have. In fact, we've done that exact experiment probably 25 times or so by now. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that works. It, it actually, it all, it, like, it completely works. Like if you, if you just, so as, as an example, like in the lab context, if you ask people to rate the accuracy of like a, a neutral news headline, that's true or false. It doesn't matter. Um, at the start of the experiment, it also doesn't matter that it's neutral. But anyways, you get them to think about accuracy at the start, and we say it's like a part of a pretest or whatever. 
And then they go on to the primary task where they're just sharing. People will um, share higher quality stuff. Like the difference between true and false content increases uh, if you do that. Like you just, they're now thinking about accuracy. They're more likely to think about it. So they're just like not going to share as much false stuff. And then we did this um, Twitter experiment. I got to give cred to uh, Musa Mosley and uh, Zivi Epstein for like doing the actual mechanics behind this. But we created a bunch of Twitter bots. Um, they were cooking bots. They're like nonpartisan bots. And then we had the bots follow people who shared content from Breitbart. Breitbart being a partisan website that, you know, if people were thinking more about accuracy, they probably should share less of. You know, they don't, so it's like, it's not fake news. They're not making stuff up, but it's all, it's pretty, you know, biased and partisan. Um, and so we, we took, we used the bots to follow people. Um, and then once some people followed us back, which is what people do on Twitter, not me, <laughs> but like, cause I don't like, uh, look at my notifications that closely, I guess, or maybe I'm an asshole. I don't know. Um, so people followed back the bot. And then once they followed back our bot, we could send them like a direct message. And, uh, the direct message was just a question about accuracy. And then we like did it so that people would, we compare it to people who didn't get the message yet to those who did. And then you could track their Twitter for 24 hours afterwards. And then basically what you find is like sending them a single DM with a question about accuracy improves the quality of the sources that they shared on Twitter for 24 hours after that, which sounds like one of those experiments that doesn't like wouldn't work <laughs> like honestly, but it's a very simple idea. Like you just, people think about accuracy. They're like, Oh, I guess I, maybe I shouldn't share that. It's a pretty simple, like there's the, the psychology behind it is pretty straightforward. Um, and so I think it's pretty robust. Like we find it in every experiment that we run basically. And so, uh, yeah. So do you, do you know if Twitter or Facebook have considered implementing something like this, you know, on their I know end? they've considered it. We've talked to them about it. Have they done it? No. Nope. Uh, and if like another thing, by the way, is like, if you ask people, we have another other project with Jenny Allen is the lead on it. Um, and Dave and also Antonio, uh, Alonso Arachar. Um, if you ask, if you get so if you get a bunch of fact checkers to rate, to actually fact check a bunch of headlines. Um, the correlation among the, we had three fact checkers. The correlation among them was like 0.66, uh, because, you know, it's hard, sometimes it's hard to figure out what's true or false, especially among a set of like difficult headlines. Um, and then we had like lay people rate, like people from MTurk just like guess about the, the truth of them. Uh, basically you need about 10 to 15 MTurkers to get the fidelity of one fact checker. It's just wisdom of the crowds, right? Like their guesses, the errors kind of cancel out. And so if Facebook were to like, ask people to rate the accuracy. It's like a product thing. You know, like, do you think this is accurate as ostensibly to be like, um, you know, to help inform the algorithm or whatever? They could use the information to actually inform the algorithm, show people stuff that they want. People want to see accurate stuff on Facebook. And the people who are asked would be like more discerning about what they share subsequently. Uh, that sounds great, doesn't it? Facebook hasn't done it. I don't know. They don't want to do it probably. And I, will they ever do it? I'm guessing not. So I'm, I'm I'm not gonna lie. So you know I, I'm obviously aware of this research on accuracy and, and and read about it, but I I cannot help but feel skeptical uh, of that result, and that's because you know you mentioned your brother who's um you know in deep in the rabbit hole. I unfortunately also have family members who are also in the rabbit hole, and uh, it's very concerning to me, and it seems like and again this is complete completely anecdotal, although I've had more than one conversation with multiple people, some are friends, some are family members. And it seems to me like there was absolutely nothing I could say that would change their mind about their views. And certainly if I said, do you think that's accurate what you're reading? Like they'll just laugh in my face. They will laugh in my face. Cause like, so my father is one of these people 
Okay. And, you know, he actually talks about accuracy as a reason why he's going into the rabbit hole. Oh, you can't trust these, these new sources. They're not accurate. They're biased and they have an agenda they're trying to sell. And you have to, you have to get a wide media diet to get at the truth. And actually that's not incorrect. Like as a principle, it's not incorrect, but like, you know, of course I would say then, well, make sure the sources you're, the wide number of sources you're seeing have some reputation uh, or, or have some, you know, um, have been checked by, by fact checkers, et cetera. Um, but like, you know, simply saying, you know, dad, I think you should maybe think a bit more before you, you know, and he shares stuff with me. Um, so I don't know when I saw that, I'm like, it just, it just seems way too simple. And, and like that, that can't be right. But anyways, what do you think? Uh, you know, having this experience yourself, I think that if you think one message is going to take someone out of the conspiracy rabbit hole, then like, (laughs) like that, there's no way that's going to work. Uh, the, the only reason that it works is in the aggregate. That is like, because some people have, people have a general kind of overall, they have differences in competency, knowledge, and so on, but they can do better than what they're doing now. Like, thinking about things a little bit more does help in the aggregate. Because, you know, people have knowledge and skills that they're not using to the full extent because they're not thinking about accuracy enough or whatever. Uh, just, you know, they're, 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 the, the, something about the social media kind of environment is like making them laser thinkers than they ought to be basically it's it's not going to pull somebody out of the rabbit hole though like you know um it, it, once you go it's basically it relies on your capacity to be able to discern between what's true and false by thinking a bit more and so it's just it's one element of a solution but it does it's definitely not going to solve all that all that and i don't know i mean and it is i mean think about it this way though it is the case that p- people care about accuracy even the people like deep down the rabbit hole like my brother He's like deeply concerned about the truth. Like he's spending all the time, like he's like obsessed with it. He's like reading shit and watching YouTube videos or whatever, like all the time, like getting deeper and deeper into what, you know, what he thinks is the truth. The problem is that none of it is true. You know, it's not that it's just that he doesn't, you know, he can't distinguish anymore between what's true and false. And so you, to solve that problem, you need far more expansive interventions. You need high, like better educational. You need, you need to give people the right sort of knowledge. You need to get them out of whatever social problems they're dealing with to get down that path. You have to fix the mental health issues that lead someone to try to find um, some other stuff to engage with, you know. Um, so it's only one element of a much bigger problem. Well, so it seems to me like the way that we've been talking about this is very like standard for social psychologists and that we want to intervene on the individuals. We're like, how can we nudge them? Or what are the things that we, right? And another way to look at it might be like, well, you know, it's not, the problem isn't located within the individual. The problem is the system. And uh, what we need to do is in some way to make these firms liable for uh, the misinformation that's being spread using their platforms. And the way that this is treated legally in the US is sort of arcane. And I don't wouldn't want to bore people by like really getting into it. But like, in broad terms, is that an argument that you're sympathetic to? I'm sympathetic to it. I don't know. I um, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm such a, a fool when it comes to public, public policy. Like, I don't know how to think through the contingencies. Like, I know that what, what annoys me the most about the social media companies is that you just know that they don't give a shit in the sense that like, we, we, what we tried to do with this particular intervention was that we wanted to come up with something. I mean, I can't, I fall from the research, but we, we, we have been trying to package it as a minimally invasive, like thing that 
people want to see, like people care about accuracy. That won't like it's not probably gonna impact the bottom line that much. Um, to try to like market it to the social media companies so they can actually do it. You know what I mean? Um, it's but it's just there's been no. Uh, I mean I shouldn't say no. Like we we we're doing some work with uh, Jigsaw, which is the R and D arm of Google, who by far are the best that we've dealt with. Um, um, we might be able to, we we have some meetings with TikTok. It's very hard to figure out how to measure misinformation on TikTok though, so like we don't know how far that's going to go. But anyways, but like Facebook has been completely unresponsive to us, and and at least not sufficiently responsive in my view. Um, and so that's a problem. Like, there, there's just no apart from the court of public opinion. There's no way to get around it. Like there's nothing. There's no structures as long as people, you know, are going to move on to the next thing. Facebook will carry on doing what they're going to do. But you, well, it's kind of, I, I thought you were going to go a slightly different direction with your question. Um, and that was um, we're criticizing social, social psychologists, which is, you know, a bread and butter thing that we do here. But, but actually more looking at individual differences, right? So I thought where you're going, where, where, at least where my mind was going, was if you're, if you're captured, you know, like your brother, like my father, um, yeah, a, a simple nudge like this is, 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 you know, you need a lot more tools to get someone out of that than, you know, like a nudge, like, you know, think accurately. But is it the case that that kind of message is better received by people who are, you know, open-minded, but not just, not quite in that place yet. And for them, you know, I think many of us care about accuracy. If you give them this nudge, you're like, oh yeah, maybe I should think about this. And that might prevent them from getting in that, in that space to begin with. So is there any evidence uh, or information about who is more likely to be uh, impacted, you know, uh, positively with these kinds of accuracy interventions? So so, uh, it generally works across the board. Uh, it works a little bit better for people that are a bit more reflective, you know, probably because they have better, once they, once they start thinking there's, they have better tools and they, they might be more willing to take up. You need a pretty big sample to get that effect though. Like it's, it generally is pretty consistent. I mean, it works even for, if you, we asked, we had this one question where we said, um, well, how important is it to only share accurate content? Some, some version of that question. And so almost everybody says very important. They're extremely important. Some people say not at all important, like just cynical assholes in the group. It, but it works even for that group, even for the people who say it's not important in the context of the study, you find the effect. Uh, I mean, one thing that I have to add to that, though, is that this is within the context of the typical fake news stuff, where people are pretty good at distinguishing between what's true and false, uh, if you ask them directly. Um, and so it's a bit, it's probably a bit of an easier task. And so like, if you, the part of the issue with the people who are like down the rabbit hole, it's not just that they, you know, they really care about, like, deeply care about, like, the QAnon thing or whatever. But they have so many, like, wrong ideas about what's going on. Thinking about accuracy is not going to really impact because there's nothing that they can latch on to that's going to benefit. And so that's not really the case for most of our participants in our studies. So we haven't really, we don't really, we haven't really done a good study. Um, there's hardly, it'd be hard to get a sample of the people that are deep down the rabbit hole to do an experiment on, obviously. Oh, that would be so fascinating to get people like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've I've had in you know since COVID, like two or three conversations that are deeply troubling with people, like believing crazy crazy shit uh, about the source of COVID, about like what's going to happen with vaccinations. Bill Gates invariably you know comes comes into the conversation, and like these are educated smart people, and I just want to shake them, right? Um, but like if I say anything again, you know going back to my earlier point, if I say anything about accuracy, they're like they're going to look at me being like, you're the dumb one. 
you're the one who's not actually thinking. You're like, don't you understand that it's all about Bill Gates and planting these microchips? Like, I'm like, uh, no, I had not considered that. There are, there are elements of like the religion and the cult thing where they, where the, where the narratives that are built reinforce themselves, where like, uh, you become of the people that you're, you, you have the red pill or whatever. You, you know more than everybody else does about the thing. And so like, um, if, and as part of it also is like, you can't trust the mainstream media. And so, you know, and so they, you enlist the people within your own group and then it becomes very insulated and uh, echo chambery and whatever. So, so you brought up COVID Mickey and, um, and, and I see that we have a question on it and I do, I, th- I think I really want to know about this research that you guys have done and maybe I'll, I'll make a confession here and then you guys can shame me on the, uh, the believing crazy things, um, angle. Um, I read an article, uh, recently about the lab leak theory of COVID origins, which is briefly that, uh, it escaped from a research lab in China. Not that it was released as a bioweapon or anything like that, but that they were doing research and whoops, something got out. And, you know, I, I don't think that that case is uh, open and shut by any means, but there is at least some reasons to think that it might be a plausible hypothesis. And when I read this story, I felt a little bit, like a tiny bit like, Gord, what you were just talking about, this sense of like, they've been lying to me. Because I feel like just in my casual reading of the mainstream news sites, they're like, this is crazy conspiracy bullshit. It's pushed by Mike Pompeo, Trump's secretary of state. Nobody respectable would believe this. And then I read this article, and I think it was in New York Magazine. And I was like, well, this at least seems like something that should be checked out. And then I told a friend of mine, and she said I was a conspiracy theorist. And then I was really mad. So uh, I guess, well, talk me out of it. I suppose I don't. I, it seems it seems like it's like among the plausible things. But I still like here, here's my view on this kind of stuff. The amount of work it would be required for me to get enough of an understanding of that to have an opinion is is too high, and so I just default to whatever I think the experts believe. Um, and I, I don't believe it. I just like I'll, that is a, that's my my agnostic position plus a tiny little fraction of belief is whatever the experts say. I think I'd probably be in the same camp where like where my it takes such so much expertise to actually understand what's plausible and not in this domain, I'm going to rely on experts there. So what you know, I do think we need experts and I, I, I tend to trust experts, but should I trust them, you know, uh, you know, at all times? No. They're they're gonna be wrong at certain places and some places they might have even have biases, but I suppose in this domain, I'm I'm with you. I'm like, in, unless there's a significant significant number of people who are you know making intelligent claims in this direction, I'm probably going to ignore it. Yeah, and the um, thing about the media thing is like that they're, they're not always accurate. Same with science, like experts and so on, but they're never deliberately inaccurate, right? Like for for a journalist to lie, like that's a, it's the same as a scientist making up data, right? Like that that's the one thing that you do that like obviously ends your job. And so, like, among the people in the world that we can trust, you know, I put journalists higher on the list than most. Yeah, I I mean, I guess the fear would be that they sort of, without enough skepticism, repeat the conventional wisdom. And I, I mean, like, throughout the pandemic, we've seen some of that, right? So stories about how masks don't work uh, and don't bother and border closures don't work. And anybody who pushes for one is a xenophobic bigot. And we've seen that conventional wisdom kind of do a 180, right? And so it a little bit makes you think, hey, uh, 
maybe people like in the media are a bit overly confident in portraying sort of the level of evidence for a proposition. And in in the end, right, like there may be legitimate scientific controversy that, you know, uh, a reporter for the Washington Post doesn't have the either the word count or or maybe the like training to really represent in all of its nuance. I mean, fair enough, but I, the 180 is, I get the opposite from that. The fact that there's a 180 tells me that they that they are tracking what people are saying. Like imagine the opposite world where where they where they protect what they had said in the past. That's when we're in trouble. That's when they're like they um they're they're not keeping track of. And when when scientists stop changing their mind, that's when we're really screwed, right? Um, and so I'm okay with that kind of like, oh, coffee's good, coffee's bad. Well, I mean, they probably shouldn't just write, bother with the articles, you know. But people are going to read them, whatever. Um, so that's, I mean, that seems to be, yeah, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay with that part of it. Yeah, me too. I, I think actually changing your mind is actually a sign of intellectual humility and a sign of your learning from progress. But I also agree with you, Yoel, that um, because, well, people do change their mind. New evidence has come to light. Um, so, it, you know, I would never, I would, I, I know you know what I just said, but um, I would never uh, say 100% it can't be true. Right, this this lab theory of, you know, you know uh, a coronavirus escaping from a lab. Um, but until I'm, you know, until there's a consensus or more of a consensus, I'm, I'm probably not going to because I don't have the expertise. And um, and rather, and also there's a you know opportunity cost to just spending so much time thinking about this one thing. So I'm like, I got other things to think about. I think people got got to get over their own opinions, basically. Yeah, I think it's totally right that you don't want to hold it against a, a person or a community if they update their beliefs in light of new evidence. I think that's totally right. So, so let's talk about the um, research that you've done on on COVID misinformation, which I actually don't know anything about. So can you just tell us a little bit about what uh, you and your collaborators have been doing? Um, so like uh, what I normally, what happens to me is like if something is on my mind, I will find a way to turn it into a project. You know what I mean? And that's like part, especially if it's something that's creating some sort of anxiety, uh, like how can I turn this into something that I can put my time into so that my thinking, part of it's just being like an efficiency hawk. If I'm going to think about this, I should make it into something that's worked. Maybe I don't know what's wrong with me, but anyways. Um, and so the, the COVID misinformation thing was, is, is very, it's very similar to the stuff that I've been doing, which is trying to figure out people's beliefs and why, why they hold them. And, and one of the key things about fake news that we hadn't mentioned yet is like one of the general stories is that it's all about politics, right? Where you like, where it's not, it's not about what's true or false, it's about whether it's consistent with their ideology or inconsistent. It's all what's called like um, system two motivated reasoning. It's uh, identity protective cognition from Dan Cahan's uh, work. And so the idea is there is that reasoning facilitates political polarization. It facilitates inaccuracy in motivated contexts. And so uh, and, that, and so in, in the fake news work, we don't find evidence for that. We find that people who are better at reasoning are better able to distinguish between what's true and false, regardless of whether it's consistent or inconsistent with their ideology. We find the same thing for science beliefs, like general, uh, I got a paper with John McFeatures, uh, um, who's now at Durham, who's my postdoc previously, looking at a bunch of different science beliefs, you see the same thing. And so COVID came and we're like, here's a novel thing where like it's been politicized in the States Less so in the UK. Canada's kind of a mix or whatever. You get some American like distillation or whatever. And so we ran a study that was like at the end of, Mar uh, end of March, simultaneously in the US, in the UK, in Canada, same measures of ideology, everything else. Uh, and you find like ideology is a much stronger predictor of misperceptions in the, in the US than it is of UK. 
It's a bit stronger in uh, Canada, depending on what kind of controls you have in there. And then um, because uh, and then and then relating to the motivated reasoning thing, you find that like people who are better at reasoning are less likely to hold misperceptions. Democrats, Republicans, you know, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, and then we we had to like because at, so it was under review at PSPB Personality Social Psychology Bolton. We had to run another experiment <laughs> because of uh, various review requests, as happens. And we did we did a study back in December, so I haven't even put this online yet. Um, and so the polarization in the states has gotten way worse, like since March. It's like almost twice as bad. Like the the correlation between ideology and COVID misperceptions is like 0.5 ish. Uh, it's like super strong. Um, and it's way stronger in the U.S. than the U.K. still. Um, now there is a kind of interaction where people who are better at reasoning are a little bit more polarized uh, around misperception. That is, the correlation uh, between being good at reasoning and misperceptions is a bit weaker for Republicans than it is for Democrats. But it is still negative for both groups. So, like, generally reasoning helps, but it's just, like, there's some, like, counter countervailing influences, which is all the politi- political bullshit that's, like invading people's minds and so that's the bent that's the general it's all the same as what i've done before but now now with covid <laughs> when you say misperceptions what beliefs specifically are you looking at oh so they're, they're they were they were specific to the science we had 21 different ones in the first study so it was like um does like uh, what was it can you determine if you have covid by holding your breath or like does vitamin c do that kind of stuff or is it and then like so that kind of innocuous stuff but also like um was it created del- the answers are yes, by the way, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Um, was it created deliberately in the lab? We had we did put deliberately in the lab, not just was it created in the lab, because uh, we because we knew that we weren't sure about that part of it. Um, and then the more recent ones would be like, you know, does wearing a mask work? And like, is it five G? Did Bill Gates develop it, etc.? Every answer is yes, except for one mask. <laughs> yeah, <no>. exactly. <laughs> Now my, my Republican bingo, <laughs> correct? Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, oh, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but we're running out of time, I think. Um, you know what? I just saw something uh, that you tweeted and Dave Rand tweeted as well uh, in the past week or so. Where you, you It's actually less psychology data and maybe it's like just more like polling data um, where you're looking at the degree of polarization, but also just looking at like basic, you know, facts that that people that that republicans and democrats believe about the 2020 election um so you know i think this is like a, a byproduct of some of the you're always you know kind of polling uh polling people in the u.s so you know what you know what does that data reveal about you know uh people's belief about you know who won the election yeah, so, uh, yeah. Um, um so i guess a general way to understand why I like the stuff that I do is like, I want to figure out whatever the most common things that are false that people believe are, and then figure out what, why they do that. Um, and so in the, in the case of the election, I mean, so part of it is the same, as I just said, where people who are better at re- Republicans or Trump voters, I should say, who are better at reasoning, higher on the CR, like, higher on the counter reflection test, better at reasoning are less likely to think that Trump won. So do you think that if it was motivated it'd be kind of the opposite or whatever? Um, so it is the same thing, but we just didn't write the paper that way because the more interesting things there were just the descriptives. Like how many people, how many re- Trump voters believe that Trump won, even though it was obvious that he didn't. And and the answer is almost all of them, like a, a, high, a high proportion of people, um, of Trump voters believe that Trump won. And we ran the study on November 10th, which was like three days after it was called by the, the media companies. They, they, the um, belief that voter fraud was common is super high among Trump voters. And so basically it was kind of a way to estimate 
the extent of the misinformation problem, really. And like, I think about it this way, like, after the election, there was these, these huge falsehoods. Trump won the election. Not true. No evidence for that. Believed by lots of people. COVID was a hoax or like over, overblown. Believed by a lot of people. You know, not true. Um, and then like the QAnon stuff. And like, so like the conspiratorial thinking among Americans is like, that's, I don't know, like, that seems like a pretty, pretty big nexus of like, uh, of stuff. And so I wanted to do something to like try to sort that out. And you're saying this is, you're, you're putting this or not all of it, but, but a lot of it on, you know, the extent to which people, you know, kind of carefully think about things, deliberate about things as opposed to kind of thinking with their gut. But you're not pointing to just plain old partisanship. You know, if I'm a Republican, you know, my, my, my boy didn't win. So like, screw it. Like, yeah, of course he lost. But do I, do I truly actually believe that? I, that's secondary. Who well, that's even cares? A, that, thank you for that. So, so it definitely is. That's important too. Partisanship is important. It just doesn't, I don't think it plays that strong of a causal role as we as social psychologists think. So like in, so in the COVID stuff, for example, um, when you predict people's misperceptions, uh, a more robust, robust predictor than conservatism is whether you trust Fox News and Breitbart. It's actually more consistent. Like just mis- like not ha- distrusting uh, traditional media outlets and trusting conservative media outlets. That's a better predictor than ideology for COVID misperceptions. Um, but aren't they correlated? Like super not as highly as you think. But I mean, they're pretty. I mean, they're like correlated. Uh, 0.6-ish or something like that. Like, there are different things, though. But, so, so basically, it's like, I think it's because, so, ideolo- people, ideologues differ, not just in their ideology, but in what they're exposed to. Like, imagine watching Fox News all the time. Like, the, you see the same claim. I don't have to yeah, imagine it, Gord. The same claim is going to seem way more plausible to you, right? And it's not because, like, you, you are engaging in motivated reasoning and a deliberation. You're not, like, it's not comfort, you know, it's to some extent, of course, you decide what sources you go to, obviously. But like the 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 people are in different information environments, and that's causing a lot of the polarization. It's it's a, it's an intuitive uh, polarization, and so that's why being reflective is part of the kind of solution to the same problem. And so they so it's not they're not it's not conflicting narratives. It's kind of the same same general idea. So Mickey, uh, I want to make sure that we fit in our Canadian content. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, this is, you know, really, uh, this will be in- of interest to like, a, what are, what Canadians are like our second or third highest, you know, group of people who listen to our show. So Americans, because there's so many, so many goddamn <laughs> Americans out there, they listen to most. And I think Canada is number two or number three. Um, so some of our, some of our listeners will enjoy this, but this is going to be like, you know, uh, kind of lighthearted questions, Gord. Um, rapid fire style. Yep. All right. So, all right. First question. Which Gordon do you like more, Lightfoot or Downey? Downey. No question. Why? Can Can you just decode their big? I I, I guess I've heard of Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> Who's the other dude? The lead singer of the Tragically Hip, one of my favorite bands. One of my favorite concerts ever was uh, in the gardens at the Delta Besbro at Saskatoon. It was a uh, tragically hip concert. It was great. Well, you're gonna love the next question. Yes, you'll definitely like the next question, and this is like a, a gift. This is a gift to you, Gord. Um, what is your favorite tragically hip song? And the bonus, the gift is whatever you pick. I'll put put it up on our our break music. It's a good life if you don't weaken. Uh, that was a, say that it's again. It's a good life if you don't weaken. 
Is okay, I'm not sure I know that song. song. I love it. Uh, but that was the song that was playing as the sun was going down in the gardens behind the Delta Bezbro. Okay, so I mean, maybe for for our you know uh, our other listeners, Tragically Hip are they're a, an iconic Canadian band uh, that a lot of people grew up on. You know, like from the '90s, like early '90s to I don't know what mid 2000s maybe. Um, Gord Downey sadly was diagnosed with with, with a brain tumor and then died a few years later. Um, and he's just kind of a really beloved character uh, in in you know Canadian lore and. I think he makes, I think the tragedy are more loved because they were only ever popular in Canada. Despite them trying to gain some popularity in the United States, like it never really took hold, unlike other Canadian acts. For some reason, tragically, they are only really appreciated by Canadians. I don't know why. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. I don't, and I don't know why either. And I actually, I've, I've, um, I had this experience where I was listening to them and I was like, I know that people wouldn't like this, but I, I, I fucking love it. And I don't know why, but it, like it, I mean, it's one of those things like you, you grew up with the thing and then you just, but it is, it is, and he sings about Canada sometimes, I guess. And it's just that, and I guess maybe I'm just uh, a prisoner to my own like past or whatever, but I, but I love it. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. I, I love it too. And, and, and uh, yeah, it makes you think of Canada all the time. It's, it's uh, some of those, some of the songs, you know, make me cry, even though they're not sad songs. I just like, it brings, yeah, it makes me really emotional. Um, okay. Uh, okay. You're, you're, Born and raised in, in in Saskatchewan, all right. You live in Saskatchewan right now, yet, and this is so puzzling for me. You are a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, say you know a mediocre hockey team, <laughs> historically mediocre hockey team. Um, but you're not a fan of the Winnipeg Jets closer to you. You're not a fan of any of the Alberta teams. So this is hockey talk here. So why? Why? How, how did that happen? When I was uh, seven or eight, um, the Leafs were playing L.A. Kings in the finals. That was Wayne Gretzky versus Dan Gilmore. No, no, no. Let's correct. I want to correct you. They Not the finals. The conference the finals. Western yeah, yeah. final. Whatever. In my brain, it was the finals. It was the. It was the most. And it was a bullshit call. What it doesn't matter. Anyways, I asked my dad um, who he was cheering for, and he said the Leafs. The important thing to remember, my dad is remember, as if you knew this. Um, he's a he's a ref. He was he refed hockey for years, and so he was always a kind of like nonpartisan for hockey, which is a very weird thing, very kitsch Canadian. Um, but he didn't really pick a side that much. He usually went with the underdog. Um, but that day he he said the Leafs and I decided at that point I'm going to be a Leafs fan and then I just I stuck with it. Of course the thing in is like Hockey Night in Canada had the Leafs on it on Saturdays and I'm in Saskatchewan. I wasn't going to games. wasn't driving to Winnipeg to go to the game. So it was as arbitrary as anything else. I that's how I chose the Leafs. I just want to just just draw your attention to then that same exact year, Gord. There was another Canadian team that also was in a quote unquote final, the Eastern final, that ended up winning the Stanley Cup. Um, you could have been a fan of them. That's 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 much. That's Canadians. how random our lives are, baby. But also, my dad would never have said the Canadians because there's a there's a French English situation in Canada here that he uh, he 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 cheered for the underdogs unless they were the Habs. Because you didn't like French people, I guess so. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't. I, I married, my wife is French. She's well. She's a she's a Saskaphone. She's a, a Canadian uh, or that is a French Saskatchewan person. But anyways. Okay, cool. Okay, the last one is not so much a question, but to uh, to test your 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 the, the how much you actually believe. You know, your the, the 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 how confident are you you are in your belief? And I've done this once before with another academic, and I won. So I'm warning you: Will you bet a six pack 
you know, you can send me a gift card and I'll send you a gift card. Um, that the Habs, the Montreal Canadiens, the team I root for, uh, will advance further in the playoffs than the Leafs. That, that whoever advances further, the Leafs or the Habs, and if one doesn't make the playoffs, then the other one yes. wins. Oh, definitely. The Leafs are yeah, they're way better. Yes, I will. Yeah, they're way better on paper. Although I will, uh, I should acknowledge this much that the sports is the, is the, I allowed myself to have this domain in my life that was completely irrational. Like I made the, the, the choice that I was going to allow myself to watch sports, even though I know it's stupid. Um, but I do turn the games off now if they're losing. So um, I guess that's a progress. But I will make the bet. Yeah, I will make right. the bet. The Habs, <laughs> Habs are going to be terrible. I mean, I think I think Anderson was a good ad, but I think the Habs are going to suck. Okay. So, but again, the, the bet is to make sure we're clear. Not more. Not most points in the season. Further. Who will make it further in the playoffs, assuming they both make it? Yeah. The yeah sure. Wait. Wait. Hold on, hold on. Some I I just want to clarify something. If neither team makes the playoffs, is it just the bets off? No, then we have to send you beer. We'll send you well you all get Oh wow, then I get <laughs> yeah. then I get both six packs. Yeah. yeah, that's very unlikely. But okay, sure. Sure. If if neither one makes the makes the playoffs, then we send beer to you all. And whoever makes it further in the playoffs, you know, that's a, that's a pure win for you. You don't have to send any beer if you if I know. This is all upside. <laughs> I think it's, it's, I love this. I'm with it. I'm with it. That's okay. It's exceed, exceedingly unlikely that you all get any beer in this bet. You know, uh, it's a, it's not a 0% <laughs> chance. So uh, what have I got to lose? One last question. Neither of you is tempted to hedge hedonically by betting against your favorite team. No. I, 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 I've done this for... No, I can't. I, actually, I can't do it because this is this is the area, like I said, the area of my life where I allow myself to be irrational. I do full full motivated. I'm just going to I'm just going to go on the bandwagon and, you know, yeah. Well, see, I would be willing to bet that the Toronto Maple Leafs will have more points at the end of the season than the, the Montreal Canadiens. I'd be willing to put money on that. But I do not think they'll go further, assuming they both, like, both make the playoffs, that they will go further in the playoffs. All right. Well, uh, you've both committed to send me beer if neither <laughs> of them makes the playoffs. So I'll be rooting for that outcome. Um, Gord, thanks so much for joining us. This was really fun and uh, really informative for me. My pleasure. My, my great pleasure. My pleasure.